Anita, how's your mental health? <laughs> Questionable <laughs> at all times. You know this. Yeah. How's the mental health of your children? Um, also a little bit tricky. Can I tell you my experience in trying to find therapists for myself and my kids, Mel? Yes, please. Okay. This is how it goes. You ask around your friends and your family for a referral for somebody who's nearby. You finally find somebody who sounds like they might work for your family. You give them a call and you find out that A, they're not accepting new patients or B, they have a huge wait list. So you start over again and you ask people if they know anybody who would be a good therapist and a good fit. Finally, you find one, you go and you meet with them and you figure out that you don't actually like them that much. But it's been so much work to find somebody who you can go to in your area that you're kind of stuck with them. Well, do you have any ideas for how to get around this? Um, I do, because guess what? I've actually had some therapists that I have found on my own, which involves what you're saying. Sometimes I remember one time I was like three hours in the bathtub on my phone looking through yeah. websites. I was such a prune at the end. But I have also had the experience with working with BetterHelp and it was like, I, I don't want to say too good to be true, but because it is true, but it's like amazing because I was matched with my therapist within 24 hours. And you didn't have to go through all of that other ridiculous process of trying to find somebody. And here's the cool thing too, is if that person didn't work out for you, you can just switch and say, and it's not like you're committing to another years long search for somebody who you're going to jive with. It's true. And I lucked out or maybe just BetterHelp is really good at matching people together because I never had to change my therapist. I loved her. Perfect fit for me. And I know that some of our friends have used BetterHelp and they've had to change therapists and boom, same day can change. Easy peasy. You can ghost your therapist. <laughs> Get a new one. I love this idea. BetterHelp is one of our sponsors. If you use our promo code, trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN, you get 10% off your first month and we totally recommend it. Yes. Get some therapy. That's <laughs> trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN. Anita. What? If Scott had not died, I would be married for five years this Wednesday. Why did you get married in December? Had you known he was going to die, would you have changed that and gotten married in a month that was not already full of terrible emotions? Well, first of all, let's back up. I tried to convince Scott to choose January because December is insane for everybody. And also for a gigging musician, it's very insane. That's me. And he just was so into but it's going to look magical and it's Christmas time and the lights are going to be up and everybody's happy because of the holidays. And I was like, okay, but you realize like forever after this, whenever we want to celebrate it, we're going to have to do it in January because it's just going to be too insane. Well, anyway, we had one anniversary <laughs> on December 15th and then he died. So I am left with the anniversary, which to be fair, has not been a terrible day on any of the days, except the first one actually probably. So I feel like Scott is a Hallmark movie in himself. He's like, let's get married when it's beautiful and the sparkling lights. Yeah. It can't be worse than your last couple of weeks, though. Can it be? I hope not. No, and it also can't be worse than him re-dying. So I can make it through anything. But yeah, dog death, no good. And then a friend's dog also died yesterday in a tragic manner, and we are close to that dog. It's a dog playmate of ours, so kind of 
kind of getting tired of the tragic death in animals as well. But it happens, I know. But here's the thing, though. Do you think, knowing what the widowhood experience is, you would still choose to marry the person? Um, I would, yes. But I also had 20 years and four children. So if I was to say no, then I would be erasing those four people's lives, which I don't think I can do. If I could, though, I would just do it still and then not have him die. But that wasn't one of the options, now was it? No, because it's an impossible question. Right. Would you? I don't know. Because I think it's pretty traumatic. And we were only married a year and 11 months. Yeah. And so we were just in the phases of let's get to know each other. Oh, boom, you're dead. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, when I look at what I have now as a result of the loss and how much I've grown, there's no way that that would happen if he had not died. So if I went back in time and I changed everything, I would skip that. And I, who knows what would be the alternative? I don't know. It might be something else terrible, you know? Yeah. Like It's an existential question and it's scary to think about it or you don't want to sound like a jerk if you say, yeah, I wish that I had never done that. But yeah. or Or I wouldn't ask for him back now. We've talked about that too. Like I don't even recognize myself now and I, I can't even conceptualize the trajectory of my life as it was going along. It's hard for me to say like, oh, this is where we would be now because it's so much different. But I'm curious um, what you guys, if you would A, get married or be in the relationship with the person, if you knew they were going to die and B, if you would give up what you have now to have them back. Because here's the other thing. I feel like in a lot of ways, we are presented with life is supposed to be fun and happy and easy. And it's not. And I don't really think that life is meant to be that way. I think life is meant to be a growing experience. And so if I look through the lens of, I just am going to be living on the planet and have a happy life and have a Hallmark movie life. Okay, that, that, that's one thing. But if I'm looking through the lens of, I'm going to grow and I'm going to hurt and I'm going to learn how to deal with pain and with joy and all of the things, then that's a different story. So, and so I, when someone says, would you trade? I'm like, I don't think the point is to trade, even though the question is just a fun, silly, not fun, just a silly one. Cause you can't really make it happen. So it's like, why even, why do we even play that game? Deep thoughts. Oh my gosh. Let's talk about cheese. Deep thoughts with Mel and Anita. Just kidding. How was your week, Anita? Oh, remember how last week I was like, things are going really well. Well, the wheels fell off the bus and I just, there wasn't one thing that I could point to, but it just seemed like things got really heavy and deep and, and my motivation went downhill and just was feeling sad. And I had a party that I was supposed to go to a Christmas party on Friday. It's a party that I look forward to every year. It's really fun with our friend group. We do ridiculous white elephant gifts. And as I was getting ready to go or thinking about getting ready to go, I just laid like face down on my bed and could not make myself get up and put a shirt on. Cause I was just like, I don't want to go because it's going to be awkward. And Jason's supposed to be here with me and they're going to want to talk about it, or they're not going to want to talk about it. And it's going to be weird either way. And and I don't want to be doing this and my kids are crazy and I have to take care of them and there's nobody else to help me. And it just kind of swirled into a into a, a tornado of inaction. The only reason that I ended up, the thing that kind of like let me kind of get over that little hump 
was that we had a DoorDash incident, a DoorDash mishap, <laughs> which, you know, everybody has one of those, but I ended up having to go pick up the DoorDash from another place because my daughter had changed the delivery address to the junior high. So I was already in the car. I had to put on clothes to go get the the DoorDash stuff. So, and then I just drove to the party and I ended up having so much fun. The first 10 or 15 minutes was really weird and awkward. And I felt a lot of those feelings. And then it was like, I kind of settled in and it was like, oh, this isn't weird. Nobody's just staring at me. So, and I have a great friend group who they do a good job of talking about Jason, but not also just focusing on that either. I did have some uh, people ask me some questions about various topics, including dating. No. Well, yes, actually, we did talk about that, but not in a direct way. And also headstones. <laughs> oh, that's on your list. That's like the most stressful, more mm-hmm. than dating, right? They're like, when are you going to get a headstone? I'm like, someday. They're like, but when? And I'm like, I don't know. They're like, why aren't you doing it? You know? And I'm like, cuz it's hard. The end. So good luck with that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I know that a lot of us are feeling all of the feelings this month. And we had our widow Zoom hangs yesterday. And we did a fun activity. And I know some of us that showed up to the group didn't really feel like doing something fun. But I think it ended up okay. Yeah. Sometimes we don't know what's going to help us, even if it's a little tiny, stupid game. So thanks to those who showed up. It was fun to see you guys. Yeah, and we learned some very interesting facts about people. Very interesting. Yes, so if you would like to join a Zoom hang, we have them the second Saturday of every month. We have two of those, and you can join the Widow Wives Club on Facebook. It's free, and you can learn more information. And we also have extra hangs this month because it's so tricky. So... Sarah Kennedy, who was episode 96, Sarah Swear Kennedy, she is heading up a group on Christmas Eve, and that's in the events tab in our group. And then this Wednesday, also my anniversary, is Kelly Ford. So check that if you guys are interested and you want to just chat. And it doesn't have to even be about sad things. You can talk about maybe (laughs) cross-stitching, maybe uh, nacho cheese, whatever. It could be whatever. All of all of the normal things. Being a young widow, we hear over and over, and I think you and I both feel like this too, is an incredibly isolating situation to be in because there's not a lot of people around you who are in your same shoes. And so just talking to others, especially in a landmine, landmine, the minefield of the holidays um, can be helpful. So there's not going to be like a big program. You're just going to get together, chat with people. If you feel like you need a little extra support, join those. They're going to be on Facebook what is it called? Facebook group? What is what is the platform called? Facebook. <laughs> it's Facebook. They have like it's, meeting rooms or something though. They're like Zoom, right? It's yeah, it's within the Facebook platform. So if you're in the group and you go to events, it's there. Okay. So it's perfect. not Zoom. It does what Zoom does, but it's in Facebook. So Okay, great. Yes. Yeah. And speaking of isolating public service announcement to I know this is not our listeners. I I see this in other groups. If you have had children and somebody posts, I'm all alone because my husband is dead and I have no children, please do not say to them, I know how you feel because my kids are grown and gone. Just don't say that. I will personally come and cut you. And I know that sunshine will come with me. We have a whole (laughs) riding at dawn situation going. So please be sensitive. Yeah. Although this is kind of preaching to the choir because we have really great friends and listeners. But who's with me, kidless widows? Not the same thing. 
It's not the same thing. And I mean, we talk about this all the time. It's not like one is harder than the other. And being an empty nest widow comes with its own challenges. It's really difficult. I'm not one of them, but I can imagine that it is isolating and hard. But it's definitely not the same situation as never having kids. So just try not to compare um, our situations and tell each other that we know how it is when we're in different boats. Um, Empty nesters, we love you so much. We know so many lovely people in your group and also the widowed moms have a lot going on and that's its own kind of hard and kidless widows so we're all in this together let's just be aware that we are all in unique circumstances and we would love to know more about your circumstance so please tell us if you want to keep the podcast going consider checking out our patreon it's patreon.com slash wwdn it's a place for you to support content creators making a podcast cost money and also it takes a lot of melon my time and so if you want to help us to keep doing it then check it out there's four different tiers and one of the benefits is is you get a shout out if you join the level widow bestie and up you get a shout out in episodes so for those that are new that's what's happening here and we are going to start with our first dead husband our secret dead husband and we say to her rudolph the red nose (laughs) widow widow had a very shiny face because she was crying (laughs) (laughs) and if you ever saw her saw her You would say that she's insane. Or a sociopath. (laughs) Wow. Very, very nice. You're welcome. Next, we have Constance Dahlbeck. After Constance, we have David Kelly, who's a chili head. Don Satterwhite. Gail Paxton. Ivan the Meisner. Kat. Krista Waite. Sam Finlayson. My personal driver. Amy Hartman Martell. Amy Sapp. Ashley Han, Ashley Hahn. Chris Steffen. Christina Shiflett. Danielle Catterberg. Not a Debbie Downer. Danielle is not boring. Dennis Brazo. I have a question, Dennis. If you're Italian, would you would you pronounce it Brozzo? Hmm. Good question. Jenny Taylor. Jennifer Brown. Jennifer Hassel. Jenny Wang. Kathy Murray. Kelly Ford. Spooky Scary Stromberg. Laura Bradbury. Lauren Old. Don't push me out of an airplane. You can push me or Missy. Leslie Webb. Marie Hoffman sending love for you and Bellatrix. And Biscuit. Yes. Missy Schubertian Symphony number no. nine. Rachel Barbosa. Woo woo. Sarah Morris. Sylvia. Slingshot. Sure. The second. Taylor Snyder. Uh, Karen Cornejo. Vicky Spit, Dog Mom, Animal Mom, and the widow of Kirkhoff. Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff, and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But the Money's Not podcast is here to help. She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. 
Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff, there is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone But Then the Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms. This ad was paid for by Rockhouse Financial, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Anna Tracy. Christina Scambato. Christine Anderson. We really want to hear your story from the other night. Cindy Raynaud. Good to see you. She's an origami specialist. Mindy Holmgren. Don Barber. Debbie Fells. Diana Becker. Emily Thornton. Emily Toledo. <laughs> Who is a social butterfly until she wasn't. Or just very friendly. Aaron Posick, hater of watermelon. Gabe Lozano. Gina Haas, who's a great guesser. Ian Cini. Ileana Bell Ruiz. Your favorite person in the whole wide world. Aw, Jackie. And my mom, who's also one of my favorite people. Now they're going to be in competition with each other. That's dangerous. Jenny Barrow. Jocelyn Milo. Fancy Lady Joy Kirsch. Julie Stevenson. Karina Jacopo. Katie Radcliffe. Kara Scara. Lindsay Kanopka. Lori Farrington. Marjorie Lewis. Mary McGowan. Megan Montague. Peter Rukavina. Becky Zyba. Sarah Kennedy. Shannon Helm. Stacy Saywert. Sunshine Haven. <laughs> My partner in crime. Tammy Schwartz. Tara Wallace. Val the Packer. And LED light bulb Wendy. If you'd like to join our Patreon and get a shout out in episode, please go to patreon.com slash WWDN. And if you just want to give us some tacos, Mel really needs some gas station nachos. So go to buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now and I will take Mel on her anniversary to buy some gas station nachos. I'm a poor widow. I only need like 79 cents. It's fine. <laughs> no, gas station nachos are like $3.99. Ah, inflation. Mm-hmm, totally. Mel, this episode is special. Tell us why. This is our, drum roll please. 100th episode. Wah, ah, ah. Our 100th full length episode. We have some widow sods in there. But we have been doing this for 100 episodes. Can you even believe that? That is wild. That's a lot of editing by me. Mel, you deserve all the gas station nachos you can eat. Thank you. Yes, it, it's a lot of work to put a podcast on. And we have enjoyed getting to talk to each and every one of our guests. So, yes, 100th full length episode. I think we have something like 128 total but this is yeah the big 100 so we've been making this podcast now for a little over two years and we cannot have imagined what it was going to turn into when we started in my basement in our pillow fort um <laughs> we have gathered a bunch of widows together we feel like the widow fairy godmothers for some of you even though we're terrible at grant granting wishes um but thank you for being with us through this whole ride guys who knew that two crazies in Anita's basement could put something on the, on the internet and gain friends? That probably just means something about all of you guys, that you are as <laughs> wacky as us. So we're glad to be in good company. We are really excited for this next guest because not only is it a great interview, but we have a special topic at the end that goes a little bit more extensively than some of our other conversations about this topic. 
You'll have to stay tuned to the end to know what it is, but I promise you it's worth it. Yes. Okay, let's do it. I'm Anita. I'm Mel. We are two widows who've made 100 episodes, and we just are trying to figure out... Widow. We do. Now. This episode is sponsored by the Meisner Family Foundation, in memory of Elizabeth Meisner. I've been waiting for this day, Anita, because there is a backstory of how you, specifically met this next guest lured this person into our group okay let's not have you sound serial killer ish <laughs> but maybe you want me to sound normal ish i guess do your best okay we'll see how it goes yes this person who we have as a guest is important for a number of reasons one is that he knows a great deal about cheese really yeah what else could we ask for in a guest that's true and he's a widower so That's knocking off two huge boxes of greatness in our minds. This is Robert Bowles. Robert, Rob, Bobby, Robbie, Robert. Those were the choices we gave him for his name. And not Kyle. Yeah, he said he'd just go with Rob. So hi, Rob. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Mal. Anita. Rob, where do you live? So I live in Idaho. I heard somebody describe it this way recently, and I loved it. So if you've read the book Educated, and you've seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite, I live between those two places. <laughs> That's a great, that was a great way to describe it. <laughs> do you know Tara Westover? Uh, I do not know Tara personally. My sister-in-law was in some shows with her, was in some of, probably some of the shows that she describes in her book. Do you know Napoleon Dynamite? So Napoleon Dynamite is not a real character. Oh, fine. Do you know Jared and Jerusha Hess? Yes. Are they from there? Yes. Well, Jared is. Jerusha's not. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, Jared and his family. One thing about educated is also my cousin's, well, my mom's cousin. He's my second cousin. My second cousin is, I think he's described as Charlie or Charles. And it was her boyfriend, Tara's boyfriend. And he's my second cousin. Really? Everyone... If you need an interesting read that is a true story, go check out Educated by Tara Westover. It's very interesting. You'll not stop thinking about it for a really long time after you read it. And then watch Napoleon Dynamite and imagine what my <laughs> life might be like. <laughs> and then, yes. And then think about how you're probably a widow or a widower listening to this. And that is Rob Bowles. <laughs> Can we please explain how we came together, how we came to know each other, because I think that this is a cool story. Maybe it's just because it involves me, and so I think it's cool, but tell us the story. Okay, this was a, it's a big part of my uh, healing, too. So thank you, Anita. The day was June 23rd. You even remember the day? Yeah, because I've got pictures with the date tag. Okay, (laughs) okay, cool. Um, Which you then instructed me was International Widow's Day as well oh yeah i forgot that too and you were proudly wearing a widow wives club shirt at uh the amusement park that we were both at i was not feeling well having been old enough that i don't like amusement rides quite as much (laughs) as i used to and i'd gone to lagoon with my sister-in-law who was kind enough to take me and my boys with us with her and she has no children and and she was riding the rides as she's younger. And still, her inner ear must work functionally. <laughs> and so, funny. 
So I she, feel the same way. <laughs> so she and my boys were on Bombora, and I was sitting on the bench holding our drinks, trying to keep everything down in my stomach. And Anita walks by in her Widow Wives Club shirt, and I quickly am alerted to the fact that her shirt very clearly said Widow. And I was like, what is this? This is so strange. And I didn't speak with you, but I quickly Googled Widow Wives Club and thought, okay, what's going on? Is this a brand of clothing that I'm unaware of? I, you know, I didn't know what was going on. And so once I Googled it and got a little bit of information, I decided that I'm going to find this woman and I'm going to talk to her because I want to know more about this club. And obviously she knows something about it because she's has a shirt. And so as I'm wandering the park, I uh, keep my eyes out creepily like you do for a woman wearing a widow t-shirt. And now describing this in the future as a widower, I can imagine that it could be pretty creepy, Anita, when I approached <laughs> you. But nope. <laughs> I did find you later. You know, it'd been, I don't know, it wasn't too long. Uh, but I found you and I had the courage enough to come and talk to you and ask you about what the Widow Wives Club was. And it was uh, super exciting to learn that not only did you know what it was, but you were a founding member. And uh, the host of this podcast. And you explained a few of the details to me. We exchanged very briefly our stories. I was approximately six months from the passing of Sarah at the time. Um, I don't remember how long it had been from Jason's passing, but we then parted ways. I didn't come across too creepy in my mind. Maybe in your mind, you can add those details. <laughs> no. And we parted, we parted ways. And you told me to join the, uh, join the club and listen to the podcast. So I didn't while I was at Lagoon, but that night I got on Facebook. I requested membership, which is rigorous for those listeners. Mm -hmm. We have a rigorous vetting process. Yeah, which I passed. And then I started binging the podcast. Now I'm here six, seven months later, and I'm now a guest on the podcast due to your shirt on International Widows <laughs> Day at Lagoon. So my favorite part of this whole thing that went down is that Rob comes and, you know, says, can I ask you about your shirt? And, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, you know, so I, I start explaining it. And, and he kind of tells me his story. He says, I'm a widower and kind of tells me his little story. And I tell him my story. And the lady, there was a lady sitting on the bench next to me. And you could just see her eyes. She was looking at you and then at me and then at you <laughs> and then at me. And finally, she was like, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to be nosy, but I can't, I can't help but listen to you and I'm so sorry <laughs> it was kind of funny I mean we were just talking like nobody was around and she was like what in the world how can so much tragedy be standing right next to me the poor muggle <laughs> yes because we were talking about our kids and how old they were and you know the circumstances of death and all of these things so that was kind of my favorite my favorite little side note from that. And I did not think you were creepy, but I was a little bit surprised when you asked me about my shirt because I never imagined anybody asking me about it. That's how we came together in this lovely club of widowhood. Ugh. So, Rob, tell us about Sarah. We met in uh, 2006. She was a waitress at Firehouse Pizza, and I was a guest at a birthday party at Firehouse Pizza where she was our waitress and I took it upon myself to flirt with her and then leave my phone number 
and leave a generous tip and make sure she was aware that I had left the tip and that my phone number was associated with it. She then uh, texted me the next week and asked, I got this number from a guy. What do you think I should do with it? And I told her, if you tell him thanks, I'll bet he asks you out. And the rest was history. That actually works. I feel like I don't even know because I haven't dated for so long, but I don't even know how you do that. So I'm 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 amazed that she took the bait. Well, I mean, looking at me now, plus then, yeah, it, it is pretty amazing that she did take the bait. She did. So you guys met and dated and got married, right? Yeah. When did you guys get married? So we got married July 17th in 2007. We just need to know what you do for a living because this is also important. My employer is a feed cooperative and I am a nutritionist or a dietitian for cows is the way I always describe it. So I'm a dairy nutritionist. I work with farmers on maximizing the profitability of their operations and making milk. By feeding the cows kale. Ew. Just kidding. I just made that part up. Um, we do feed some seaweed, but in very, very small amounts because it's kind of expensive. Really? Why? So it can help with their gut microbiome. I haven't used the sponsor's stuff, but... Uh... <laughs> Is there a dry ombre for cows? <laughs> okay, now I know 100% more about cow feed than I did before. Okay, you and Sarah are married and you're living your life. And what goes down? So as as part of it... Interestingly enough, um, our first son was stillborn in 2009. She was 36 weeks pregnant and it was a Sunday morning and she just didn't feel any movement. And she worked as as a nurse in the emergency room. And we went into the emergency room and just kind of snuck in the back door. Don't tell IHC. And the, the doctors, some of her friends came and did some ultrasounds and they just, they, he had no heartbeat anymore. So they induced her and she delivered him the next day, uh, in 2009. And, that was that was really hard, and it it's been so different that next week as we mourned together the loss of a life that we expected, and we had a nursery set up and we're waiting to bring a child home to. As we mourned that together, it's been it was so healing to do it together, to mourn together and be together. Life went on. We had two more children who are in my life now. I have a ten year old and an eight year old boy. They're great, and we're happy for them. And then uh, the difference as we've mourned Sarah with two young boys is a lot different to mourn the loss of your spouse than to mourn the loss of an unborn baby that you had your spouse to hold and care for through that. Of the widowers we've interviewed, very many of them have also had some sort of either child or... Um, pregnancy loss beforehand, which I find like, what is the deal with that? That's not really an answerable question, but just really, it just kind of interesting. It's so many things that I've, I've learned that I want to, I feel like I'm talking to the wrong audience, not you two, but the whole, our whole club, right. Is the audience of people that have already gone through this. And so many times I want to be able to yell at people that are still, you know, that still have their spouse or that are, you know, complaining about having a child or being pregnant and say one in three pregnancies ends poorly and 50% of us are going to die before our spouse. And obviously the three of us here, it happened much sooner than we expected. But when we say I do, when we get married, we don't expect it to happen. We don't even think about that. We're not thinking about the fact that 
we're going to bury our spouse at some point. I guess we all, everybody just hopes that their spouse will bury them, I guess. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, it's like putting it on a shelf until it happens. And then when it does happen, heaven forbid it's prematurely, like you're not 99, you're younger, then I feel like so many people are grossly unprepared. Hence the whole reason for this podcast. And we really appreciate you being on here and talking about it. Because as you know, widowers are not as likely to want to talk about their experiences. You wrote something once in the Widow Wives Club that went along with that. And it was basically that when you say I do or you commit in a relationship, you're you're basically saying I'm committing to being a widow or widower at some point in time. And like you said, you have a 50-50% chance of outliving your partner or your spouse and becoming a widow or widower. And I had never, ever, ever considered that, even being a widow myself. I'd never thought, oh, yeah, I did. I wish somebody would have told me. Maybe I wouldn't have committed. To credit the original thought, it goes to C.S. Lewis in his book, A Grief Observed. And I just want to tell everybody that I know that's married and happily married and has or or is partnered and, and has a loving relationship that they're not considering this. I want to tell them, start thinking about it because you don't know when it's going to happen. You know, you can go from a healthy situation to an unhealthy situation very quickly, as as you two know, quicker than what I, you know, Sarah died of stomach cancer. And it was, you know, years of sickness and illness that, that we processed and mourned through. Do you ever stand out in the cow field and yell, your spouse is gonna die to the cows just to get it out of your system? Um, not at the cows because most cows in our day are all artificially inseminated. So they don't really have a spouse. It's just, (laughs) they're modern day cows. Women these days in the cow world don't need men. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That was the quote of the, of the day. (laughs) Women cows don't need spouses. One thing that I've noticed is there's actually quite a few of us in the widow wives club who have lost, lost their partner to stomach cancer. And as we went to the hospital and worked through this, not once did we cross paths with a person that was dealing with stomach cancer that was going through treatment or surgery. And we went to multiple hospitals and I know, I know there probably were people, but we just didn't see them. And unfortunately that's a statistic that you probably don't want to hear. The people we saw at oncology were breast cancers and colon cancers. And I know people in the club have lost spouses to those cancers, but um, you don't meet a lot of people that are living that are fighting or have overcome stomach cancer. And early on, that was a really hard thing for me to process because I, so I come from a science background. Sarah was a nurse and she did too, but she didn't want to know. She wanted to have hope. And so she didn't, she didn't want to look at statistics, didn't want to read about what her opportunities were in the future. And, and I did, I was reading all kinds of scientific papers and research on it. And maybe that was an error on my part, but the survival rates of stage four stomach cancer that she had are, are extremely low. And it can be, if it's detected earlier, this rates are a lot higher, like stage one or two is like up in the sixties or 70% survival, which obviously if you're diagnosed with that, you're like, that's not good. <laughs> but it's way better than the single digits or teens that you get when you get into stage four, but it's so hard to detect. Stomach cancer is just one that's really sneaky under the radar and and doesn't get caught very early. And that was the unfortunate case with with Sarah's that hers was not 
identifiable. She started with just some abdominal pain and, and early satiety, uh, early fullness and not able to eat as much. And she started losing weight. She was initially kind of happy about. And then you get to a point where you're like, eh, this isn't right. I shouldn't be losing weight like this because it's never happened before in my life. And um, eventually she was diagnosed. We went through three or four hospitals, multiple doctors, and finally ended up getting referred to somebody that was able to be aggressive enough in some uh, just scopes down her throat. It was like EGD maybe, and, and get some biopsies that identified the cancer. And so then she did treatment and then had a full uh, gastrectomy and uh, did HIPEC, which is a pretty aggressive form of heated chemotherapy that they put in your abdomen when they remove your stomach. And then they roll you around on the table for like 90 minutes to try to bathe your abdomen in chemo. That sounds kind of like a spa treatment, but a really dumb one. It also reminds me of, I don't know if you know the band Emerson, Lake and Palmer, because they had really cool stage tricks, theatrics, and they could spin their drummer around I'm thinking that that's what she was kind of in. But she was not awake for that, right? No, that no, no. During, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so, the surgery. So the surgery was was about 10 hours or something. And what they did is they removed her stomach. Then they sew you up, pump you full of heated chemotherapy on like a dialysis type machine where they pull it out of you, heat it, put it back in you and circulate it for like 90 minutes while you're on the table. Then flush it, then open you back up and then finish the surgery and uh, sew you back up to finish it off. Wow. Holy smoke. Sarah described it. She's like, yeah, it does sound like a terrible spa treatment. There are no screening tests for stomach cancer, are there? No, because a lot of the markers that they use can be kind of unreliable unless you have other, other results. And they don't really recommend the esophageal, you know, scopes on a regular basis at a certain age. And in, in Asia, where it's a little more common, they, they maybe do it a little bit more and they're a little more aggressive on what they do. But, you know, here in the United States, and I think even in Europe, it's just, it's not screened for. And so it goes missed until it's metastasized basically a lot of times. Yeah, because, you know, we have mammograms for breast cancer and for colon cancer, they do the... Um... What is that called? Col colonoscopies at a certain age, which a lot of the people in our group were too young for anyway. But um, yeah, there aren't any for stomach cancer. So that's kind of a, that's hard. So as you became more familiar with the world of stomach cancer and perhaps maybe, I don't know if after the fact, as you've met more people that had it, is there a movement or are there talks about it being something that's more commonly screened for? Like, where's the world at right now with that stuff? Do you know? Not, not great. You know, the organization for stomach cancer isn't, isn't nearly as strong or robust as like the breast cancer awareness type stuff or, or even, you know, colon cancer. And I, I don't know if, if it's because it's less common or if there's just not enough survivors at this stage to, to increase interest or, or whatever. Do, so does like a really, really famous person need to get stomach cancer to promote awareness for it? Like how, how can that change? Because there's so many. There's so many that have stomach cancer. And the ones that I, I've, I've met a few. Well, I have some friends who have had family members before I became a widow that got stomach cancer. And it's always like at the end stages. And so they've had like three weeks to live. And it's like, you're gone. 
So it's so common. Yeah. Who can we talk to? Oprah. There's been a couple of famous people. I can't remember now, but they died. You know, they, they didn't have very long to promote awareness. And it is, it's a high rate of diagnosis, uh, but it's not one that people survive. Hence, I've met a lot of people in the Widow Wives Club that have had problems with it in their lives, but I didn't meet anybody in, in the cancer world. And it's, it was the other hard thing that after Sarah had surgery and she had a total gastrectomy, the only things that people compared it to were bariatric surgery. And so they'd send you to somebody like to talk about how she's supposed to eat. And her oncologist like, you need to gain weight. And she's like, I can't, I can't eat. I, she had, they, they tied her esophagus to her small intestine. She had no stomach whatsoever. And so she, she had such a hard time eating the, the last, you know, it was almost a year. She lived almost a year after her surgery. And, but there was very, very little support even then because so few people have that surgery and then survive for very long, but there's not people to go talk to and say, Hey, how are you doing this? I have a weird question. I hope it doesn't make you feel weird. But you specialize in nutrition for cows. So were you like, were you trying to figure out how to make your wife gain weight through nutritional supplements or trying to do your cow thing on your wife? Oh my gosh, that was a great eloquent way that that sentence ended up. And I'm sorry for Anita. Um, so I totally am understanding and Sarah's not here to defend herself. So uh, <laughs> I guess I'm going to share this with my mom. And so mom patience with us, I grew up on a dairy farm and my dad and my brother are still operating the dairy farm. And so I've had a long line of comparing women to cows from lactation <laughs> to birthing oh to gestation. Cows gestation is nine months as well. So there's a lot of things that are very similar. And we did a lot of comparisons in and the lactation, when you get into lactation stuff, then you really start getting your wives to roll their eyes at you. Like, <laughs> I'm not a cow. No, I know, but <laughs> this is what I know. This is dangerous territory. Yeah. I can see that this would be problematic. <laughs> so, so I had a very open conversation with Sarah all the time about comparing her to a cow. And regularly she, you know, said it's not appropriate, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's mostly just calories, right? It's the same for humans and most animals is, is trying to get calories in in the most dense format. And unfortunately, without a stomach, and then you run into gallbladder issues and all sorts of enzyme issues. And so fats caused her a lot of, of heartburn. And so fats are your most dense calories and you, you she just couldn't process them very well. So then you had to go to your next most dense and so sugars and, and everything like that. And it's just volume and volume was the, was a was a huge issue and they didn't supplement her with some sort of iv nutrition no um in the hospital right after, she was in the hospital for 14 days after her surgery and they did some of there but uh they they didn't have they talked initially about doing a, a tube like a j tube there's a lot of issues with that and with her youth and healing ability you know they didn't like they do them sometimes on on older people that had stomach removals but with her, they were pretty, you know, they felt good about her age and her health status besides everything else. And her chemo had worked pretty well and it shrunk the tumor and they were pretty confident after the surgery, but I think surgeons usually are. So. And how old was she at this point? So she, when she had surgery, she was 34. She's diagnosed at 33, I think. And then surgery at 34. And then she, when she passed, she was 35. That's not supposed to happen. 
Yeah. And that, that was one of the issues in getting the diagnosis was people go, you go in and say, Hey, I'm having this abdominal pain, like, well, gallbladder, well, this, well, that try, try these, try these, uh, antacids, you know, antacids are like prescription level antacids and come back and we don't know. And then we were even told at the cancer hospital a few months before the diagnosis, you don't have cancer. And sure enough, she did. So her decline was a slow progression. It took, you said it was two years from diagnosis until she died. Is that about right? So from diagnosis to death is probably a year and a half. Uh, like two years from when we started, when she was really noticing like that she's having issues and started saying something's wrong, something's not right with what's going on with me. So how old were your kids when she started feeling unwell? Um, that was 2019. Six and eight? 2019 would have been, yeah. Yeah, probably five and seven because it was early in the year and their birthdays are late here. So... so- did they have a lot of memories of her before she was sick or did most of their memories, are they occupied with that period where she was sick and declining? As we talk about that, the older, my older son, Seth, he does have memories. He has a lot more memories than uh, Graham does. The memories Graham brings up are almost all, you know, during, during chemotherapy and, and during, after surgery, you know, that he, he has memories of and try to reinforce those. You know, because I think as even as he gets older, he's he's just not going to have that many memories of something. It's so interesting because then they're they're in that really malleable stage, and to have them grow up in that age period and see that as normal life, you know, that's the expectation of how life is. That's a really interesting um, age to be watching that go down and, and to see your mom get sicker and sicker and sicker and maybe not understand, you know, why that's happening or what to expect or, you know, be scared about the outcome. Did they, were they fearful? Did they understand? Probably the hardest moment was when um, we came home after we'd been to the doctor and found that it had come back. And Sarah was so brave. She, she felt like it was, it was going to be back when we were headed to the doctor and she, was prepared. And she said, I don't want you to be mad at me, but I, I'm not going to fight this anymore. If it's back, I know it takes a lot of bravery to face chemo and continue fighting. But I also, in her defense, I want to say it takes a lot of bravery to face death as bravely as she did, because she, she was ready. She said, I know this is what's going to, how it's going to end. So I'm going to do it on my terms, not on, not on the cancer's terms. And so when we came home from the hospital that day and talked to the boys and told them what has happened and what was going to go down, they just, they wailed. They, they laid on the floor and wailed and it breaks your heart to say, mom's, mom's only going to live three to six more months. So we talked about it a lot. I mean, it's pretty open with them. And so I think they were aware. And when she got really, really sick and was bed bound, they had the last time they came in, you regretted that they came in because after that, they didn't want to come see her anymore. And they actually went to my mom's. In my mind, I'm like, well, we should have said goodbye one day sooner than we did. But how do you know? Right. As Sarah is, she's knowing she's dying. How were those interactions with her and your boys? What did she want them to know? So this is all during COVID as well. She'd started chemo before COVID was a thing, at least in the U.S., 
And I remember when we went to the Huntsman to get her surgery, there was a sign on the, on the, on the entry desk that says, if you've been to Wuhan, China, then you need to let us know. And I'm like, this is so weird. What's going on? This is a January, 2020. And I'm like, whatever, why they even have this note? Little did we know a couple months later, life changed, but we had been pretty reclusive and had, had kept to ourselves and try to keep our, our lives pretty as normal as possible during chemotherapy. And Sarah had been wearing masks to protect herself through chemotherapy. And so that transition and everything for our kids and us was pretty normal to COVID. We're really grateful, actually. Don't, don't kill us, please. Don't crucify us. We're gra- grateful school was canceled and Sarah had those, those extra months with the kids when she was about as healthy as she ever was post you know, post-diagnosis because she wasn't doing chemo. She was recovering from surgery and she was able to do school with them for that springtime and be with them. And we had a really peaceful summer and we, we talked a lot with them about what was going on and we just wanted it to be as normal as possible and to be open with them about uh, what was going on. Uh, didn't want to withhold details. She had an excellent uh, social worker at the hospital that had you know, tried to give us some instructions on how to work with the kids. And so we just, we talked to them about most things that they were prepared for and let them ask questions. And that's another thing that I, I wish that, you know, I could tell people that are going through this is say, be open with your kids. They're, they're, they're more, don't withhold information. Um, tell them what they want to hear or what they ask about, answer their questions and try to face it as best you can. And that it blessed, it blessed my life so much that we had those months because Sarah planned everything. She went in and she bought her own. She bought our funeral, our grave plots. She went into the city and purchased them on her own without me. And, and she said she wanted to do it. So again, don't crucify me. Uh, but the ladies that were at the desk, when I went in later to get the deed and talk to them about it, they said, when initially when she came in, we were really mad at you. Where are wondering where are you? Where is the husband in this situation? And she designed our headstone and she she planned her funeral program and asked personally to all of her siblings and her parents and the people that participated what they what they want, you know, would they do what she asked? And she did all that on her own. The day she told me, We're going to the mortuary, I was like, I don't want to do that. She goes, You're going with me. So we went to the mortuary and then we went to the cemetery. And had a picnic and wandered around looking at headstones, getting ideas. What a strange date. Uh, yeah. 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 And I think about it, you know, had I done that with Jason, that would have been so bizarre. Like, I'm going to be there soon. You know, it sucked doing it by myself. But I think it also would suck doing it with your person knowing that that was going to happen. Well, maybe this makes me a bad person. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but... I, I feel so much for the two of you and anybody in our, in our club that has lost their spouse unexpectedly or even without as much lead time as we had, because the beauty of those moments, though they were difficult and though watching her suffer was hard, I don't think I would trade it because of the, of the moments that we did have together. And the moments that we knew what was coming and we could face it together. Because even though afterwards she was gone, I didn't have 
her to mourn with me like we did our son. Leading into it, I did have her with me to to hold my hand and, and help me through you know, the hard moments. It is all just so bad either way. <laughs> yeah, and you know that we've referenced if you could choose to have the opposite type of death, like sudden versus prolonged death for what you had. Most people choose what they know. And I know that some of our friends that did have the opportunity to pick out the funeral plans and, and certain things like that, those are treasured memories. And Anita and I, you're right, we don't know what that's like. And I have to say, it is pretty traumatic to have to pick that stuff out <laughs> with no help from for what they would want. So it's all hard, but we're glad that you have those memories with her. And so as you've been living the widower life, what are some things that have come to your attention or are now in your sphere that you are just not okay with? Stuff that you didn't know before, but now you know. So Anita has harassed me, and I'm going to use that term in the Facebook group, that uh, I'm, I'm a little biased and maybe prejudiced because as a white Christian male, I have felt so oppressed in my life. In this country. No, just, no, I've been very privileged, right? But uh, as a widower, one thing that's that's really been difficult for me to face and realize is that there's so little support. And I've heard a lot of people on this podcast and beyond even that I've talked to that are widows that says it's, it's changing so much for widows, but I feel like we're two, three, 10 steps behind for widowers still. And there's not even, I don't even know that there's probably demand for it, even though there are widowers, I think we exist. I think that there are a number of men like me out there, but, we either don't know where to look or we're unwilling to look or culture and society have, have kept us from being willing to open up and share, share information. And I'm so appreciative to the, you know, when I, the Wood Wives Club has grown so much, even since I joined in June. And I told people like, yeah, there's like 400 members when I joined and maybe, maybe not even 10 widowers. So I felt really out of place. But it's changed. It's changed. But I don't know that our percentages have changed that much. <laughs> but uh, the David Kelly, shout out to him, recommended a book, uh, the group, which is about a group of seven seven widowers, and it's it's been eye opening and and beneficial. I have a friend of mine. Well, Sarah and this guy's wife were friends. And so we have since become friends that lives up here close to me. And, but even then, trying to share, share stories with, with a fellow widower can be difficult because we, we both put up walls and we both have these have built-in issues of not wanting to break down our own feelings and, and appear vulnerable. I have a question about that because, like you just mentioned, not all dudes want to be vulnerable. So how do you guys get together and and use your camaraderie to heal or to be together. Like what, what's this? I know there's not a secret sauce for anybody, but often the things that work for women don't work for men. So what have you discovered so far? So it takes purposeful effort. Um, one thing that I found um, is I was, I was, I was on Sarah's phone in the months afterwards, the month afterwards. And I was, texting in a group message as her though they knew it was me they didn't think she was back from the dead with <laughs> these friends of ours that were all 
you know, some couples friends, but it was a group of only the wives. And so I was texting in this group with these women and they knew it was me, but I was found myself sharing with them things that if we turned that group into all the husbands and all the men from that group, I would have never probably shared what I did. And I also wouldn't have, I don't think that they would have shared back anything that the women shared. And so my, my sister's a librarian, a college librarian, and it's, everybody needs a librarian in their life. So if you don't have one, get one. Luckily, mine was born to us in our family. <laughs> she is born to us this day. I, I have a personal librarian in my life, and I can attest to the greatness of this phenomenon. I need to get one. Okay, keep going. So, well, maybe my sister can can help you out too. Anita. Can moonlight? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was telling her in a separate message, I was like, I find that I'm much more willing to talk to women than I am to open up to men. And right away, she starts giving me resources. She's like, okay, here's this, read this, read this, read this. And uh, it takes purposeful effort from men because we're so used to having the way it's described as shoulder to shoulder contact. So we go play sports together or we go sit at a bar type situation together where you're shoulder to shoulder and you watch a game or you do something like that. And women are so much more used to having face-to-face interactions where they are doing things where they face each other and being able to take a men men and turn our relationships into face-to-face relationships is something that we just haven't been conditioned to do. And so we don't have friends, right? So many men out there, you know, they put all their eggs in their wife's basket or in their partner's basket and they aren't, they aren't sharing their emotions or their, their burdens with other people. And we feel, you know, I'll say we, but probably me, we, we feel that that's being true to our spouse and not emotionally cheating on them. I'm, I'm going to give all my emotional burdens to my spouse. And it's not totally fair, even, even in, a, in, a, in a healthy, happy marriage, to, to expect your spouse to be your therapist and all these other things. And it can even, it can even get to the point that it's unhealthy. It's really unhealthy when your wife then dies because you have no emotional support whatsoever in those situations. And the secondary losses add up really, really quick. Yeah. Losing Sarah's other roles was, was difficult. And so I've had to take purposeful effort this last 10, 11 months and seek out men to create spaces that it's safe to to have those conversations. And luckily I've I've come across a few people that I that have helped me create those spaces. Now you live in, you know, farm country in the rough and rugged and manly man area and also kind of work space. How how are you you? Like how did you how did you figure out that you could break out of that and actually talk about your feelings and, and try and seek that out. So from, from the get go, I've never really fit the mold of maybe my job and the country that I lived in the area that I live in. I participated in musicals in school and I was in choir and my, I'm just not a cowboy. I don't, I've never, I don't wear cowboy hats and I don't wear Wranglers and uh, I have to kind of play the part at work sometimes because I work in sales and I have to, 
I have to show up with a mustache and, and a ball cap and, you know, boots so that I can make the sales that I need to make. But it's, it's not really who I am. The men that I've been able to connect with are, I had some roommates from college that reached out to me and we went to lunch and we got talking about some of these issues and we put together what we call fight club and <laughs> we do fight club on Sundays once a month. We all meet together. And you don't talk about fight club. <laughs> oh, first real fight club is we don't talk about fight club. So <laughs> Nate's going to be mad at me that I already mentioned. It, but <laughs> we meet together with this express purpose of talking about our feelings and having, you know, face-to-face interactions, not shoulder to shoulder stuff. And those guys are not widowers, right? They're just regular old folks. They're regular old muggles. They're all fairly happily married. Um, I hope their wives don't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> I find that so interesting that they are willing to do that with you because it seems like people are sometimes only willing to do that when they're pushed to that. You know, they're like, I'm going to break if I don't have somebody to talk to. So it's interesting that they're not in your same boat, but they're still willing to have Fight Club with you. You know, I think a lot of them did it out of maybe not pity, but out of, you know, to help me initially. But as, as we've done it, we started in uh, May or something. Um, As we've done it, they've all expressed each one of them from their different situations and stations in life have expressed how much it's helped them in their own marriages with their own children. We all, well, we all, I guess I'm still married. I don't know how you, that's a weird thing. We were all friends and we all have children. So all five of us that are in fight club have, have families And so we have some commonality there, but yeah, all their wives are still healthy and alive. Also, just the fact that you call it fight club is still like very manly mannish, you know, so you're not like tipping your hand that you're actually talking about your feelings. (laughs) I, I really love the comparison of face to face versus shoulder to shoulder. That makes so much sense. All of that makes so much sense. Have you been talking about this outside of the Widow Wives Club, outside of Fight Club, to any other people? Not the cows. I have I have one other friend who's a who's a guy. That's a total of six friends. I have six friends total. <laughs> <laughs> um, that are men. And uh, he was he he and I coached together for some years and had a very, very good shoulder to shoulder relationship as fellow coaches. Then we played soccer together. So we, were, we coached soccer together and we played soccer together. And he, he, was, he was divorced last fall. And I had no idea. My life was upside down and I didn't even become aware of that. And this spring, I was pushed to maybe get outside myself and do a little bit of self-care. And so the first step that I did is I contacted some people and I went back to playing soccer, old people soccer, which super entertaining. <laughs> but uh so I went down to soccer and one of the, one of our fellow friends, actually one of the young men, the young guys that we coached, who's not young anymore, but he's like, Hey, did you know, uh, have you talked to Ryan? And I was like, uh, no, why would I, I haven't heard from Ryan. He's like, well, Ryan got divorced. And so Ryan's divorce, uh, and, and Sarah passing, both of us had had our own different experiences and, and he's really good about recognizing that, but we've been able to have, really open conversations about that. And we uh, run together and do a lot of active things together, but we also spend a lot of time just talking and sharing our feelings and, and doing that. Then I've been more open with my, with my brothers. I have two brothers and, and even my parents than I probably ever have been. And so trying to basically allow myself to be more vulnerable with people I feel safe with, uh, which is now turning into you two and your entire audience 
as well. <laughs> and I 10 guess. million people worldwide. Yeah. Or about. Yeah. Rob, my dad has expressed to me over the last several months how worried he is about men that are divorced or widowed and that they don't have as much support like women do. And he's just like, there needs to be something like that. My question to you is, do you think that if there were some sort of resource online, like a support group, that men would participate in it? I know that's often a women kind of a thing because you get together and it would be face to face, but... What's the likelihood of something like that being helpful to guys? So one of the biggest things that we've discussed in, in Fight Club, and again, sorry, Nate. <laughs> um, You're in so much trouble. <laughs> is that we are making a difference in, in, in our lives by doing it and that it, it does, need to, does need to spread. But it needs to spread not just for these people that have had traumatic experiences, divorcees and uh, widowers and but all men need to recognize the need to, to maybe have people in their lives that they're willing to be vulnerable with. Um, one of Ryan's favorite authors is Brene Brown. And so there's a lot in Brene Brown about being vulnerable and being able to open ourselves up and take off some of our armor to, to share our true selves. Uh, and it's been very healing. And our biggest thing maybe as, as fathers in Fight Club is said the biggest thing we can do is probably teach our sons, you know, model to our sons and our daughters so that they maybe can help people in their lives too, but model to our sons that we are willing to, to be open and vulnerable so that our sons can grow up maybe differently than we did. And, and no fault to our parents, but as, as the generations continue, we want, we want men to be able to open up because we just, my mustache is part of Movember, which is men's help. And a big focus is mental health and men's mental health is, is in serious trouble in a lot of ways, especially in, in our demographic suicide is a leading cause of death in men aged like 18 to 35 or something like that. It's, it's crazy. And it's so much of it has to do with the fact that I think a lot of men feel like there's nobody that they can talk to. And I don't know that on your question was online support. And I don't know if men would go there on their own. It almost needs some organization and some some push to encourage people to do that. I have an idea for you. You start fight clubs and then give out a packet for somebody that could head a fight club in their area and it's like a shoulder to shoulder slash face to face hangout for dudes, but might work for dudes better. That's my idea for you. You're welcome. Okay, bye. I think you should call it oblique shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> so it's not like this but it's like you know 45 degree angle um i have a question about so it seems like maybe before you're going to be vulnerable and share your feelings with somebody there's like a fear you know you feel that like maybe i shouldn't do this have you ever done that and had somebody react uncomfortably or poorly with you like no 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 and shut you down or have people once you've you know gone out on that ledge reacted actually kindly and surprisingly that's a good question i'm not sure i haven't maybe considered that in my workspace which is different obviously when you're at work you're a different person than you are maybe outside of work at times and in my workspace maybe i haven't been willing to be vulnerable because i'm afraid of how they might respond because they're behaving differently too 
I would say that the answer is probably no. I've never opened up and had a negative reaction. But I'm also going to say that I've maybe only been willing to open up in situations that I was pretty confident that that the response was going to be positive. So I don't know if the data is any good. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I just know that in the Widow Wives Club, we've had some of the widowers talk about how they have kind of tried to broach subjects with their friends and their friends have kind of shut them down. And I wonder what the difference is if you have to preface it, if you need to like have a conversation about like, I want our relationship to be something where we can have these conversations or, or people just fall into their normal, their routines and they aren't able to step out of what's normal to them unless you kind of like clue them into the fact that this is what this is how it's been working and I need something different or if it's just you have to find a different group of people who are willing to talk about it I don't I don't know any of the answers so fight club was handpicked it was the five guys that we chose because we felt the most comfortable with what their situations were and how they might respond and then the people I'm closest to side of that are my brothers, which I felt very safe with. And, uh, my, you know, my friend Ryan, my fellow coach that he'd also suffered some traumatic experience in, in his divorce. And so the people I've been most open with are people that I felt very safe with already. Interesting. Hmm. And women. It's a big, yeah. Well, <laughs> Because women are all safe. We're always here for you. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. The statistics are always so interesting, too, because there are statistically more females that lose partners than males. There there have been studies done all over the world, and I know there's one I'm thinking of, and I want to say it was Ukraine, and only 4% of the widowed population were men. And I can see that totally, even just in the Widow Wives Club. I know we're not in Ukraine. But there is a smaller percentage of guys, and guys are systematically taught to shove their feelings down. So we really, really hope that there can be more people like you that are willing to talk about this. Everybody in that we've interviewed so far that's been a widower, we get messages about how it has helped somebody because it gives them inspiration and hope that they can be okay and that there are widowers out there. So we really appreciate for our fellow widow community what you're doing and and I think it's helping others and as any anytime you talk about it it's going to help somebody so yeah it's really tricky because it's it's a different beast in quotes than how it is for women it's trickier <laughs> well anyway that was a serious topic so thank you everybody for hanging in there thanks rob but now we have something even more serious. We need you to tell us like all of the things about cheese because here's why <laughs> I say this. One time we were talking about lactose intolerance and Rob chimes in. He's like, just so you know, any aged cheese such as, and he you name some, Parmesan, blah, 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 have very little amounts of lactose. And I was like, this is what we need, you guys. This is the expertise we've been waiting for. Teach us. So uh, aged and cultured, it needs both. Uh, oh. aged and cultured cheeses, what the culture eats is the lactose. And so when it consumes the lactose, it's gone. So any aged and cultured cheese, which most cheeses are cultured, you know, and you don't want to really age a cheese that's not cultured because then it might have wild bacteria in it and stuff anyway. But Wild uh, bacteria. Yeah, yeah. Natural fauna. Um, <laughs> the culture will consume the lactose and 
then it's gone. So it's not there anymore. There's just the byproducts, you... which are flavors and, and all the different things that, that make cheese so delicious and wonderful. So it's lactose intolerance can't be your excuse for not eating cheese. Okay. So, oh, Mel, go ahead. I have a question about cultured buttermilk. Does that mean that if it's cultured buttermilk, it's, there's no lactose in it? Mm, you're out of my depth. I don't know that, but it does take some time. And so, you know, a fresh cultured cheese is still going to have some lactose in it because the bacteria population just doesn't consume it all immediately. And I would imagine my, my guess would be scientifically is that buttermilk is not old enough for the culture to have consumed all the lactose. Mm -hmm. Thank you. How do you know if it's an aged and cultured cheese? So the drier and harder the cheese, usually the older it is. And so you don't get soft cheeses that are very old most of the time because uh, they would dry out. They, they dry out and also they have moisture in them and moisture as we know fungus is like, and all kinds of other things like to grow in them. And so being able to get a cheese to age the way you want it to age, you need to get some of the moisture out of it so that it, you can control this, control the dynamic of the cheese. Is it usually the more expensive the cheese, the less lactose is in it because it's had to be aged and kept for a while? Yeah. So aging is a big part of expense in a cheese because so if you are making cheese yourself and you make it and you can't sell it for a year or a year and a half, then you are tying up all that that money, you know, the finance of it, the the inventory value of it for that long before it becomes available. And so, yeah, uh, the older the cheese is, most of the time, the more money it's going to cost you. How much does the diet of the cow affect how the cheese tastes? So let's go back to Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, <laughs> in the future farmers of America, there is in reality. So Napoleon was in FFA and there is a real uh, milk quality competition in FFA. And in famously in Napoleon Dynamite, he says the, the cow had been in the onion patch or garlic patch or something. Onion. And, and that's true. Like if a cow is consuming onions, which cows are great recyclers, they eat a lot of byproducts and even coal onions, you know, so onions that didn't pass the grade for the store can be used for cattle feed. Probably don't want to use it for milk cow feed because cows producing milk, there will be some passing on of that flavor. Uh, some of the farms that I work with that sell direct to consumer milk oftentimes don't like to change what they're feeding their cattle, not because one flavor is better than another, but because their customer base is all conditioned to know the flavor of their milk. And so milk flavors can change and you maybe have experienced it more in milk maybe than in cheese, but uh, as the, the milk, um, you might get a gallon that tastes a little different or something. And so that, that might be off. So, could, yes. could you feed cows like a ton of strawberries, milk it, and then it would taste like strawberries? Um, probably not. Probably the strawberry flavor won't pass on. And cows are naturally, you know, herbivores. And not that strawberries aren't plants, but they're not conditioned to consume really super high levels of sugar and or starch. So they do eat corn. They do eat sugars in different forms, but you have to, you have to limit those because the microbiome of their stomachs needs to be conditioned to, to digest fiber primarily. So when you feed them seaweed, <laughs> I feel like you could have like a really interesting seaweed milk 
that that doesn't sound very good, guys. <laughs> Except for I really like seaweed, so I'd be fine with it. Really? You would eat, drink seaweed milk? Really? Guess what, Mel? I don't actually drink milk, like, ever, so... I'm sorry, Rob. I'm sorry. For shame. For shame. <laughs> I'm never like, I want a big glass of milk. This is the best dairy conversation I've ever had on the <laughs> podcast, I have to say. <laughs> it's the only one, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that leads us to the most important question that I'm really curious about because you are the expert. Anita, do the honors. What's your favorite musical that you were ever in? Uh, Scarlet Pimpernel. Were you Percy? I was Percy. You were the star. That's amazing. Okay, and what's your favorite cheese? Um, So I've given this a lot of thought, and I knew you were going to build it up as like, oh, I got to have the perfect answer. But Mm -hmm. uh, Craft singles. (laughs) No. Velveeta. (laughs) No, that's that's offensive. Easy cheese. Nacho cheese. So some of the best cheeses that I've had, and my preferred cheese to make and to consume is probably cheddar honestly, but there is a huge, huge array of quality of cheddars. And so I'm going to give some specific plugs for some specific cheddars that Ooh, we were here for this. people should maybe look at getting pencil. Okay. <laughs> I think we're recording. Yeah. I think <laughs> Take so. notes, everyone. <laughs> uh, so I really, really like the Cougar gold cheese that comes from Washington state university. I have comes, some in my fridge it, right now. It comes in a can. In a can. Yeah. Yeah. And, I haven't tried it yet. Oh, especially if you get a good one that's that's good and old. If it's not old yet, leave it in the can. It'll keep aging. It's been it's been in my fridge for like a year because I kind of forgot about it. So Do we have any widows or widowers in Pullman, Washington that would like to send us some cougar gold cheese? We'll pay you. Continue. Here's the cool thing, Mel, is you can go on the Washington State website and order cougar gold to ship to you. Directly. Let's do it, Anita. Okay. 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 What next? More, more, more. Okay. So also a little plug for Jack cheeses too from, from Washington state. So Viking gold is their Jack cheese and you can even get a pepper Jack version of it. That's also can be very aged and delicious. And then the other one in my alma mater and plug for Utah state university is they have a, a version of cheese that they made that they make called old juniper. And it's a cheddar base called Old Juniper that you can get from Utah State University. I don't know if you can get that shipped to you and it doesn't come in a can. But if you're in Logan, Utah, you can go up to the creamery and you can buy the Old Juniper cheese, which is- That's it's that's a, worth a drive for us. Yeah. Rob, I also went to Utah State only for two years. And I was gonna ask you if you went there. And I feel like I gypped myself because I did not know that you could get cheese there. I knew the creamery, the ice cream stuff, but I didn't know about the cheese. I have failed myself. Come up. You guys, okay, now, Rob knows this, hopefully. If you go to a <laughs> basketball game at Utah State, you know what I'm going to say. Yeah. Will you please tell everybody listening what the, I don't even know what you would call it. What is the motion or the cheer that happens when... The crowd's going wild at Utah State. Now, remember that the mascot is the Aggies. Yes. So it's originally the, the Utah State Agricultural College. And we are the Aggies. And as Aggies, our mascot is a bull, which this doesn't make a lot of sense. But... Right. It's so true. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they sing a song about 
uh, Utah State and the, it's called the Scotsman, the song is. And in the and in the actions that you do during a period of time, you do kind of like a mashed potato type movement, but it's really like milking a cow. So you milk the cow, you know, as you are doing the the actions to the Scotsman at Utah State basketball games. You milk the cow to strike fear into the hearts of your opponents. Even because nothing strikes fear like that. And I'm not even gonna say how weird that is because it's a bull. Because it's not a cow. So anyway, the first time I saw that, I was like, "What is happening? What are people doing?" They're like, "Milk the cow! Milk the cow!" What? Mind blowing. Thanks so much for joining us, Rob. This has been an all over the place conversation and really heartbreaking at times. Like, holy cow. (laughs) (laughs) I want to bang my head into something right now for saying that. But uh, yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you for opening up. Thank you for getting on your soapbox and talking about... Um, opening up and being a little vulnerable and working through some of the things that are really tough in this life. And thanks for stalking Anita at Lagoon. Can I, I just want to put a little plug in. So I, I, I'm not doing this very well and I don't have a lot of support. So in, in the process of becoming a widower and meeting Anita, which inspired me to do something for widowers. Uh, I, I started a YouTube channel. There's not very much content and there might not be a lot more content. But uh, there are some videos on there, me talking about some of my experiences, along with a few other people through the month of November, talking about men's mental health. Uh, and I posted one video on the Widow Wives Club. But for all the listeners, if, if they want to check it out and, and work through some of those videos, uh, talking about uh, widowers' experience, as well as men's mental health issues. Uh, it is Widower Winging It is my YouTube channel. And we will link to Rob's channel in our show notes. So please check that out. All right. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope everybody has really appreciated Rob being here, not only talking about his tragic story, but also all the cheese information. And we hope that you will join us in the Widow Wives Club so you can interact with Rob there more. And we can get some more widowers in there so the percentages are a little bit more balance and follow his youtube channel so that he can make more content and feel the love let's help the widowers guys remember to check out our patreon if you want to keep the podcast going it's patreon.com slash wwdn if you'd like to buy us tacos go to buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now and until we talk to you again i'm anita i'm mel and i'm rob we're two widows and a widower who is also a fake cowboy, <laughs> and we're trying to figure out widow we do now. Yeah. This is my favorite thing to discuss with you. Tell me, what well, is it? One of my favorite things. I do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs. This is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan, especially when you're a widow, your person is dead, you might have kids, you might need another option, and you just want your phone to work, you want unlimited texting and service, and you want it to be like 25 bucks a month. It blows my mind that they have plans that start at $15 a month. That is so cheap. And the cool thing is, is it uses other 5G networks, and so you don't have to pay extra for that, and you still get great service. Yep. Anita and I have traveled 
all over and I have used my phone. So I highly recommend it. And my mom's even on it. When my dad died, we put his phone down to the cheapest plan, which is $15 a month. And I think my mom's on the $20 a month plan and it's so worth it. It's so much cheaper than what we were all paying before. So I highly recommend it if you're on a budget or not, who cares? Ryan Reynolds is in charge of the company and they send you free stickers with Ryan Reynolds temporary tattoos. It's kind of the best. So if somebody wants to sign up, what can they do, Anita? Go to trymintmobile.com slash WWDN. Seriously, you guys, such a great idea. Save yourself some money. And if you're worried about losing data or having any changes with your phone, not going to happen. They walk you through it. Everything's fine. It's the easiest process of all time. Again, that's trymintmobile.com slash WWDN.